Hey everyone, welcome back to the Westbridge Church Podcast. To learn more about Westbridge Church, including our service times, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com. We hope this week's message encourages you to take your next step in your faith journey. Thank you for being with us today as we end up our family series. We've been in a series on dysfunctional families for the past four weeks, and today we have the pleasure of having Dr. Tim Kimmel with the organization called Family Matters, and Tim is a nationally known speaker and author, and he comes today to share with us what true greatness means, and it's great because it applies to all of us, because all of us are in a family, and God has called us all to live together, and so would you help me welcome Dr. Tim Kimmel today? set the stage for what I want to talk to you about, I'd like you to go on an airplane flight with my wife and I. Um, We live in Scottsdale, Arizona. We were flying to St. Petersburg, Florida by way of Dallas-Fort Worth. We uh, switched planes there and uh, took off, and I fly a lot, and because of that, I get defaulted up to those nice, comfortable seats often in the front of the plane. We're about a halfway, two-thirds of the way there when a man stood up, kind of looked around, cased that front section to look for the prettiest girl to hit on. I couldn't disagree with him. I thought he had excellent taste. He came up next to my wife, Darcy, and he got down on one knee. He did one of those whispers that everyone could hear. He said, hey, beautiful lady, do you know who I am? And she turned, I mean, his face is right there. Bloodshot eyes, she could smell the bourbon. He said, I- I'm sorry, I don't recognize you. And he stood up and said, I'm the great Bobby Hayes. Well, I looked up from my book and said, Darcy, he was the wide receiver for the Dallas Cowboys. We watched him play ball back when we were in grad school. Glad to be recognized, he filled in more of his resume. He says, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes. Bobby the Bullet Hayes looked more like a spent casing. But that's what happens when those guys are spearing you with those helmets all the time. He says, I'm the fastest man in the world. The fastest man in the world looked like he was going to need a walker to make a move on a pretty girl. He said, when I was in college, I broke the NCAA record in 100. I was drafted by the U.S. Olympic team, and I represented us in the 1964 Olympics in Tokyo. And it was there that I tied the world record in the 100, and I broke the world record in the 4 by. And then he reached in his blazer pocket, and he took out the gold medal from the 19. 64 Olympics, put it down in front of Darcy and said, I'm Bobby the Bullet Hayes girl. I'm the fastest man in the world. Well, Darcy did what I think you're supposed to do. She, she was holding on to that gold medal and looked up that faded ribbon to his sad face and said, Bobby, man, it's an honor to meet you. This is really great to meet you. Well, Satisfied he got from us what he wanted. He went into the next section of the plane, and we heard him say very clearly, do you know who I am? He ended up spending the rest of that flight going down there, introducing everybody to himself and showing them their medal, showing them his medal. Our hearts broke for Bobby Hayes. We we just broke. We, we, We felt so sad. He would think that we wouldn't find him significant as a human being without some gigantic, you know, who's who resume thing that he could brag about, that he he could show. And yet, as we thought about it more, we realized this is exactly where you end up 
if you drink the Kool-Aid of this world. If you buy into the leading philosophy of our culture. Because our culture is wrapped up in a success fantasy. It's hip deep in it. We have a friend named Dan. Lives in Texas. And Dan was participating in a 10K event that was being staged uh, in the shadow of Kyle Field there at Texas A&M. And, um, you know, before these kind of uh, races, you, everybody kind of gathers around. It's very festive and all. And, 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 and he was going to stretch it out. But he saw a disturbance over right at the base of the stadium, you know, where the Aggies play. And, and he went over there, and he wondered what it was. And he came over, and he saw these people all surround this big industrial dumpster. And then when he looked inside to see what it got, they were, it was filled with hundreds of trophies and plaques. Apparently, the athletic director at AM was making room for a whole new generation of champions. But when he looked at me, he said, man, people spent years of their life getting to the moment where they could win these awards. And now, these are waiting for a truck to come and crush them to dust and throw them in a landfill. And when they finally fired the, the gun and, and he was padding down the road, all they could think about how many things have I lived my life for? I'm going to someday end up in heaven's dumpster, crushed to dust, and thrown in this landfill. It is so easy to get off course. So easy. Good people, well-intended people, people like you and me, can find ourselves drawn in to the prevailing theme. Of this world, and it's real easy to make that the targets for your kids. To aim our kids at success. Now, I'm gonna tell you right now if you wanna have a dysfunctional family, do that. If you wanna miss a great opportunity, just do that. Just aim them at success. And, and, and you'll see how easy it is to miss it. You say, wait a minute, are you seriously saying that there's a problem with having a priority of aiming your kids at success? And I'm saying yes, and here's why. It's how our culture measures success. There are basically four measurements of success in our culture. Wealth, beauty, power, and fame. Those are the four things. Now, you see those words up there? There's not a thing wrong with any one of those. Not a thing wrong. I, I think I'm, I, I'm looking at a, a successful audience. You're easy on the eyes. You're, you, you know, you're, 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 I'm sure you, you have good reputation. There's nothing wrong with that if that's an outcome to your life. But when it's the goal of your life, that's when you get in trouble. And it's so easy for us to fall into this trap as parents when we're, when we're putting, when we're, we're very concerned about where our kids stand in their, 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 their rating at school among the other students or where they are on their their, their sports uh, records, how they present themselves. You know, you, you see this oftentimes at Christmas time when, you know, you, you get the cards, the Christmas cards from your friends, and, and uh, we, we always start getting them right around, you know, Thanksgiving time, and I always wait till a couple days before Christmas, and I think the welcome of them are in, and then Darcy and I will sit down and We'll go through them, and there's usually, in many of them, there's that little folded-up annual report, and you open that up. And, and, and Now, what's interesting is if you put these four filters in front of that, many times you'll see these things bouncing right off the page at you. 
My son's captain of the football team. My daughter's head of the student council. My son got a full ride to a Division I school. My daughter graduated, got her first job, six-figure income. The first number is not a one. My, my son's engaged to a woman that looks like Angelina, has those big lips. Now, no, by the way, don't, 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 don't get me wrong. Well, of course, Darcy and I are glad to hear about our friends, and, and, and obviously we're interested in what's going on in their families. But many times we know this is why they're reporting. We know why they're reporting that, because this is what is important to them. This is what's important to them. You, 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 you talk with parents and you say, okay, you're going to spend, look, you're going to spend a ton of money before this is over on these kids. And you're going to lose a lot of sleep. You're going to put some serious miles on your face. You're probably going to cry a small pond of tears. What do you hope happens for all that effort and all that sacrifice? And then once again, you say, well, I hope they get a good job. Hmm, you put good in front of job. That, that adjective, what would that mean? Well, it pays well. I hope they marry somebody that, you know, you don't have to sneak up on and, and can make decent-looking look, kids for the Christmas photo, you know, uh, you know not too, 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 too frightening. And maybe when they speak up, people are inclined to listen and, you hear this, and I know why. Because where do we live? What, is the, what, are, what are the idols of the culture we live in? Those are it. Now, now once again, I, I want to keep saying this. There's nothing wrong with any of those things unless that's what you need to feel complete, or that's what you need in your kids to make you feel like you were successful. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Paul was weighing in on this whole thing because you know what those four things have in common? You have to swallow that cultural poison pill of comparison every day. You're always being compared. He said this, not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves or who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another or compare themselves with one another, they're without understanding. Even though the success fantasy, the success illusion is an easy trap to fall into, let me let me let me tell you why uh, that that might not be the best direction for us. And when when it comes to the priorities we we bring to our role as parents and grandparents, because. One of the things is we sabotage our children's future when we make success the goal of their life rather than an outcome of living a truly great life. And, and aiming children at a future of success sets them up for a life that is self-absorbed and unnecessarily complicated. I'll tell you something else. It invites sibling rivalry right into the family. The success line, by, let, let, let's use Tyson and I as an example. Let's say we're salesmen. <coughs> what did we sell in the last uh, service? Jets? That's a good thing. Okay, let's say we sell jets. We sell a high, high item, high income item. And so we don't sell many of them, but when we do, we make a good commission. 
Now, if we're in the same company, I win two ways. I win when I make a sale, and I win when he loses one. Because my numbers look better. You see how the success fantasy does not incline our kids to want the best for each other. <laughs> and yet, it's, it's the air we breathe. I'll tell you some more, more things about it. When we aim our children to success, we need to know, first of all, God places no extra value on those four things that we listed out there. There's nothing wrong with them, but he places no value on them. We don't even need his help raising successful kids. I have friends who God is not a part of their life, but they're clearly going to raise very successful kids from the way the world measures them. And you know what else? We may deter our children from relationships, uh, discourage them from relationships or vocations that God has picked out for them. Maybe that person just doesn't come with the right pedigree, not the right side of the tracks, don't have the status that we think our kid needs to be married. Or they're called, they want to pursue a, a vocation that doesn't necessarily reward you well on payday, but is a vital, vital uh, vocation, and they feel that they're called to it. We, 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 we discourage kids with that kind of stuff. And, and here's the biggest reason why it's not a good idea. We're aiming low. <laughs> There's something far better. God's word encourages us to aim our children and our own lives at a future of true greatness. True greatness. In, in Matthew chapter 19, an incident happened. I'll just kind of tell, tell you the story. Uh, a young man who was fairly wealthy came to Jesus. I want to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Now, when you hear young and wealthy, you can assume something about it. He inherited that money too. He doesn't have any clue what it's like to go from zero to 80 miles an hour financially. He's a trust baby. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. Most of us here were born with plastic spoons in our mouth. It was actually, it helps. <laughs> and so he was thinking, since I got this stuff easy, I suppose I can see if I can get eternal life there. And Jesus said, well, okay, uh, obey the commandments. He said, I've done that since I was a kid. Well, Jesus knew his heart. He could see what this is all about. And he said, let's go for the jugular. Now, I'll tell you what, I want you to sell all you have, I want you to give that to the poor, and then I want you to come and follow me. Now, by the way, that was not a commandment to everybody, that was a commandment to that guy, because he was going right for the problem. And this young man went away, he was very discouraged and sad, because he didn't like the price tag that went with that. Well, the disciples are there listening, and Peter said, hey, we did that. We did exactly what you just said that kid had. We, we left it all and followed you. He says, I know. And you know, because of that, when we get into heaven, each one of you are going to sit on thrones with me and, 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 and help rule with me. Well, apparently James and John, who were brothers, went and told their mother about this. And so we come to the middle of chapter 20, and it's actually a funny story. When you see it in this bigger context, James and John's mother approached Jesus. And he said, what can I do? What, what do you need? And they said, well, I was wondering, when you get into your kingdom, can my one son sit on your immediate right and the other on your immediate left when you get there? There's nothing, there's nothing new about the success illusion. Been around ever since parents had kids. She wanted preferential seating. 
for our boys. Not enough that they get the rule. None of us get to do that. They wanted the closest to him. Well, he said, look, who sits where is not my call. I have no, no, that, that's not my decision. And he said to the guys, are you ready to drink the cup I have for you? They said, we are. He said, well, in fact, you will. But who sits where? I don't have any say in that. Well, the other disciples found out about this, and they got mad. Who knows what, how they were thinking? Maybe they were thinking, why didn't we get our mother to come and try get us a better seat or whatever? <laughs> but they started quibbling among themselves which one of them was actually the greatest of the 12. And then he cuts through it all, and in Matthew chapter 20, verses 26 to 28, he kind of says, look, the rulers of this world lorded over those allotted to their charge, but not so with you. Whoever wants to be greatest among you should be servant of all. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. When you take this verse and you take other verses like, let's say, uh, the greatest commandment he gave in uh, Luke 10, 27. And it was also repeated in Matthew 22, 37, where he says, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You take that verse, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You could, I think you can take those things and you can come up with a pretty good definition of what God would say greatness is all about. And it's a whole lot different than our, our, our culture says. And, and, and if, I was, if I was going to offer you a biblical definition of true greatness, I think this sums it up pretty well. True greatness is a passionate love for Jesus Christ that shows itself in an unquenchable love and concern others. That's what greatness is in God's eyes. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a love for him, and the way you know he's in his rightful place in your life is you will intuitively be concerned outwards. See, it's so different from the success illusion. True greatness is focused upwards and concerned outwards. True greatness is focused inwards and concerned about ourself. Now, here's the, here's the problem. As Christians, we can give our heart to Jesus as far as salvation, but never allow him his rightful place in our life to where that becomes a defining feature of our life, that true greatness. We can still keep the success illusion in place. Uh, but when, when God is in his rightful place, which is the driver's seat, by the way, then we should automatically be concerned outwards. And I think that's one of, the, one, one of the litmus tests we can give ourselves on any given moment. How focused outwards am I? How bothered am I when things don't go right in life or somebody's taking much more time than they should in this particular thing or I'm in the wrong line or whatever? How annoyed am I at these people or at this situation, whatever? Because that means I am seeing myself as the center of the universe. And is, like I said, it's, it's, it's an ongoing battle, isn't it, for all of us. And, and, and everything I talk about goes back to, I think, what, I, what I'm talking about here is this true greatness is really what happens when, when Jesus is in his rightful place and grace becomes a defining feature of how we deal with everybody around us. Grace. Now, there are some, you know, I've written books, Grace-Based Parenting, Grace-Filled Marriage. My daughter wrote the book, Grace-Based Discipline. All about what God's applied grace looks like in our life. But here's the problem. Uh, in the evangelical movement, there, there's been some long-standing, what I like to call um, theological um, 
urban legends. These are things that we embrace, we assume they're true and in the Bible, but they're not true, they're not in the Bible. One of them is this. One of the problems I think we have in the Christian movement is we tend to confine God's work of grace to salvation. See if you can track with me on this. Salvation. You know, I once was lost, now I'm found, I'm blind, now I see. It, 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 to, to come to Christ, you have to come to that understanding that nothing we can do can get ourselves to God. We cannot earn our place in heaven because we are sinners. We fall short of his glory. And the only way that could be fixed was somebody had to come in, in, and take our sin on himself and pay the price for it and set us free from that. And Jesus' son, God's son, Jesus, came. He took your sins and mine on him. He paid the price. And he did that not because we deserved it. He did not do that because we're so good. He did that because he loves us and he's a God of grace. And he did it in spite of us. That's the gospel, right? Okay, we confine it. We get the grace there. But then over here, over here, we, we, we leave it behind. And we move on into the Christian life. And it's all about God's truth and and. and and, and, and how to perform for him. And we figure, you know, I just want to jump through all the hoops because if I, if I don't, he's going to pull his love away from me. And if I, if I jump through the hoops, he'll love me more. By the way, everything I just said, that's not in the Bible. He's not going to love you more just because you're trying to live such an obedient life. He's not going to love you less because you don't. Because he's not loving us based on our behavior. Psalm 51, talk, Psalm 60, I'll, I'll find it, 105. Psalm 105, read that one. You'll see it right in the middle. I'm ADHD off the charts. I have a hard time remembering all. Psalm 105. The, the, he, he's, he's not doing it that way. And here's some other urban legends that often around grace. When I start talking about grace and, and start seeing Christians get squirming, get nervous, especially when it talks about parenting and having a grace-filled home or grace-filled uh, marriage, they say, well, 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 yeah, but what about boundaries? What about boundaries? What about consequences? What about discipline? You know, I've heard this for years. I've, sometimes pastors will get after me. I'm concerned about you talking. I'm getting a little nervous about you talking about God's grace. You're nervous about me talking about God's grace? And, and, and you know, applied in real life. And, and I know because they bought into the urban legend. That grace means that the boundaries are, you know, let down. That you let kids get away with murder. You don't discipline. Okay, let me ask you a question. Is Jesus dealing with all of us in grace right now? Is he? Okay. Did he erase all the boundaries? Are there no more consequences anymore? Consequences are right where they always been. Does he still discipline? The Bible says, them whom he loves, he disciplines. So, it's all right where it's always been. But he does it graciously. See, what he wants us to do is have families that are guided by his truth, all the while tempered by his grace. You want to create a culture of God's heart of grace in your family, even though you're guided by his truth. I'll give you an example of that. Okay, let's use right here. Would you say, since you, we started this service, would you say that so far between what the worship people represent, uh, uh, presented in the songs we sang, Tyson's comments, my, my use of scripture. Would you say, from a truth point of view, have we got the truth accurate up to this point? Do you think we're pretty orthodox so far? Okay. But what if it was 25 degrees in this room the whole time? And you're dressed just like you are right now. 
See, it wouldn't matter how right we're getting the truth. It wouldn't matter. You'd have a hard time responding because you're so cold. And that's what it's like when we don't invite God's grace center stage in relationships. I can define a grace-based family in one sentence. It's treating your kids the way God treats you. God doesn't yell at us. He doesn't scream at us. He doesn't shame us. He doesn't guilt us. He doesn't give us a silent treatment. He doesn't write us off. Doesn't do that. Same thing in marriages. He doesn't do that. He doesn't profane us. By the way, he has a right to on all those things. <laughs> He's a holy God that we fall short of all the time. He has every right. But he doesn't because he's a God that's dealing with, he's leading with love that is tempered by grace. And the difference between love and grace, I see, grace is like the Kevlar you want to put over your love. That gives, God gives it to protect it and keep it strong. Well, here's the cool thing. When God's grace is coming, when he's in his rightful place, and truth is guiding us, and his heart of grace is coming through us. That, that, that makes it, you know, we're focused on him, concerned outwards. There are four wonderful qualities that just show up in our lives. Let me, let me kind of rattle them off for you. And these are, the, these are the qualities that we want to build into our children and launch them with. Here's the first one, is a humble heart. A humble heart. A reverence for God and a respect for others. Tyson used this de uh, uh, definition in one of the sermons here leading up to this. Uh, humility is not thinking less of ourselves. It's thinking of ourselves less. It's an outwardly focused concern. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Paul says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interests of others. But then, that's a, that's a tall order, I think. That's a major statement he's making. But then he, he, he gives us reason why he's asking us to do this, actually telling us to do this, expecting us to do this. He goes on to say, here's why. He says, have the same mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although God, did not consider all the privileges of God something to hang on to, but he emptied himself, not of his deity, not of his godliness, but all the privileges of it, and he took upon human form, and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. In other words, he's saying, I'm not asking you to do anything that Jesus hasn't already done for you. This is his heart. And when it's there, humility just shows up. I'll, I'll give you a second wonderful quality of a truly great heart. is a grateful heart. A grateful heart. That's an appreciation for what the, uh, a person's been given and who's given it to them. 1 Thessalonians 5.18. It says, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ for you. Besides a humble heart and a grateful heart. Third, wonderful quote, a generous heart. That's a great delight in sharing with others what God has entrusted to you. Jesus said, Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give, and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it'll be measured back to you. Besides a humble heart, grateful heart, generous heart, the fourth wonderful quality is a servant's heart. A servant's heart. That's a willingness to take action in order to help others. In Matthew chapter 20, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in Matthew chapter 25, just before the crucifixion, 
account in Matthew, uh, Jesus is talking with his disciples before all hell's about to break loose. And he's talking about the end times and the judgment. And he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And he's talking about how he's doing it. And he, he says to the sheep, he says, you know, I was naked and you clothed me. And, and I was hungry. You gave me food. I was thirsty. You got me some water. I was in jail and you visited me. I, I, was, I was sick, man. You, you got me medicine and helped me. And, and, you know, you've heard, if you've been around a church, you've heard this passage, and they'll say, when did we ever do that to you? He says, when you've done it for one of the least of these, my brethren, you've done it for me. See, when, when, when we're focused up on God, when he is our, the focus of our life, that automatically makes us sensitive outwards. And it's not just the people up close to us. It starts there, spouse, kids, grandkids, friends. But it's anybody, everybody, no matter what age they are, no matter what their socioeconomic uh, what, 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 what color their skin is, what, what background they have. Whether they know God or not, that's who we're supposed to be concerned about. It's taking Jesus and leading with it. And here's the cool thing. It's not hard to build these qualities into our kids' heart. You say, yeah, right, sure. No, it, it really isn't hard. Uh, you, you, know, you know how you have to do? is show them what it looks like in the way you live your life. Not a compartment, not a every once in a while, the default mode. And this requires us in pursuit of Jesus' heart. This won't happen just coming here and depending on the professionals to give you pre-digested messages every Sunday. We're glad to do this, but, but, but you gotta, you got to be with Jesus yourself. You stay in pursuit of his heart. And when that happens, you, you start to see it come out in you. And, 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 and it changes what a family, what a Christian family is like. See, if you're a Christian home, you're raising kids, it should be better for all your neighbors that you live there. Just because they have humble people, grateful people, generous people, servant-hearted people. It should be better when your kids go to school. The, the, the teachers are, are glad they have your kid. And, and the, 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 the schoolmates are glad. It's better when you, should go to, when you go to work for everybody that works there. Now, do we have bad days? Sure. Do we get off course? Of course we do. But when, when, we, when we're, we're making a deliberate choice to say in pursuit of God's heart, he brings us back on course. And he helps us cut through all the, 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 the back noise of the culture that's around us. And by the way, in the process, you can still end up with plenty of money and, you know, easy to look at and, and, and influential and well thought of. You can still end up that. But it's, it's an outcome, not the goal. And, and, and then, if you want these in your kids, you, you want to make humility, gratefulness, generosity, and a servant spirit the expectation of your family, not the exception. That's what we did. We just said, you know, those are the only things that worked. Humility, gratefulness, generosity, service spirit. If they gave us arrogance, uh-oh, that's going to cost you. If they, they were stingy, that's going to cost you. They're not thankful, uh-oh, that's going to cost you. They don't want to help. In other words, all the things that, the opposite of these, they never worked. They always had pushback on them. The only things that worked were this. And then, then you want to you applaud your kids when, when, when they're doing it. You say, why should we applaud our kids for doing what they're supposed to do anyway? Well, I don't want to be a name dropper. But Jesus uh, <laughs> said he looks forward to someday when we're coming home into heaven. He'll have these hands with big old scars in them and, and going like this. Well done. Good and faithful servant. Well done. 
And you know, when we, when we, when we build these into our kids by embodying them through our, our ongoing pursuit of Jesus, it sets our kids up to answer the three biggest questions they have to ask, answer in life. And I'm going to land the plane with these ones. First one is, what is my mission in life going to be? What am I going to do with what God's called me to do? Or at least, what, what am I going to do with the skills he's given me to do? Here's the good news. The marketplace is hungry for humble, grateful, generous, servant-hearted people. You want to guarantee your kids employment? Build those into their heart. They want somebody that comes to work and, and they desire the best interest of the, of the corporation. They, they, they care about the corporation's uh, reputation. They care about their fellow employees. They, they care about the customers. You, you guarantee you, that they can be trusted with the company's money. Those are valuable people out there. And should your kid get a job where he's rewarded well, he or she is rewarded well on payday, they tend to hold it in an open hand because they recognize it's all God's anyways. Now, I don't mean that they're, they're willy-nilly with it and irresponsible. They, they, they want to be good stewards of it, but they realize it, it, you know, God has put me in a position where I can much, be much more generous and, and, and it be, he can use this to put fuel into other people's lives. And if they're called to a job that doesn't, necessarily pay well, but it's what they're supposed to do, they're completely fine, and they, and they usually know how to handle money better. But you got to understand how the success life can get a hold of us. We had a couple uh, raise their kids in our church, and he, they had both done very well. They, they, they were pretty well off couple, done very well. Their one son went off to a school in, in Southern California, and uh, he just couldn't figure out his major. And he tried and failed, you know, hit and miss. And then finally he came home to announce it. He said, Mom, Dad, I figured out what I'm going to be. I, I've done some testing on this. I did some interviews on this. And I and, 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 all, and, and did this on my own but, but because it's, it's really important to you. And, 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 and I, I, I'm going to be a fourth grade teacher. I've got a gift. He was all excited. The implosion was immediate. The father said, you mean to tell me I spent all this money on this high-end education? You are going to throw it away being a fourth-grade teacher? His mother said, you cannot attract a decent woman on a fourth-grade teacher's pay. You, here's her words. You can't put granite countertops on your kitchen on a fourth-grade teacher's pay. Do you understand how shallow we can be sitting center stage in a wonderful church like this, hearing the message Sunday after Sunday, and it right over our heads because we're sitting in the driver's seat and we want to stay there. And that's what happens. Let me ask you a question. How important was your fourth grade teacher? Uh, raise your hand. If it, you don't have to say it out loud. If you can remember the name of your fourth grade teacher. Anybody can remember the name? Of the, look, ma'am, you remember your fourth grade teacher? I remember Miss Hooper. By the way, if you want to pray, you parents that have these young kids coming up through school, you want to pray for them to get a great teacher every year, pray like mad that their fourth grade teacher is the best teacher they ever get. Because that's, that's the one they say is the most critical year. That's the last one they're considered a child and where they're making that transition to start the projection into, into adulthood. It's a critical time. 
All of our teachers were valuable people. Our coaches were valuable people. There's people that we don't necessarily reward well on, on payday, but we're really glad they're there when we call 911. Our first responders, our police officers, our soldiers that are out there, laying it on the line so we can have freedom of religion. These are wonderful people. And yet, the success solution can delude some people into thinking that there's something I've failed or, you, you know, I can't believe that this is what they're, they're going to do. Second big question they have to answer, who's my mate going to be? Guess what? Here's the cool thing about truly great kids. They tend to fall in love with truly great kids. There's an old saying that says you're either doubled or halved on your wedding day. By the way, it's true. It's true. Cool thing about truly great kids, they're quadrupled. They, they, I mean, they, they get along better. They, they get over stuff better. They admit their faults better. They own their junk better. They forgive faster. I think they age better. They, they deal with all the, 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 the crises of parenting better. They endure better. Besides their mission, their mate, uh, the other big question every kid has to answer, who's my master going to be? Who's the master of my life going to be? Now listen, none of us have a choice of whether we're going to be mastered. That is a foregone conclusion. You're either going to be mastered by someone or something. But the one person that's never going to be the master of your life is yourself. Period. Remember that dumb poem that we all had to study in high school, Invictus? I am the captain of my ship. I am the master of my something. I don't know. Something like that. That is absolute nonsense. No, you're not. No, I'm not. You only have one choice in life. Who your master is going to be. And after that, the stage is set. Bob Dylan had a great album called Slow Train Coming. There's a great cut on this. You ought to, if you don't have it in your mix, you need to download this one. This thing's awesome. Lyrics go something like this. You may be an ambassador to England or France. You may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You may be a socialite with a long string of pearls, but you're going to have to serve somebody. <laughs> yeah, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil. It may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, since that's so, why don't we go Joshua on this and ask for me and my house, let's serve the Lord. Let's serve the Lord. Now, no sermon from an outside speaker's official until I at least quote C.S. Lewis once. And so here you go, because he nailed it on this one. He says, you know, if you aim at heaven, you get earth thrown in. But if you aim at earth, you get neither. God is calling all of us beyond that decision of salvation to let him take his rightful place, which he bought for with real blood, and be the master of our life. But we have this background messaging coming at us from our Western culture. And, and unless you're deliberate, it can, get, it can get its hooks in you. Even if you're in the ministry, I found this out. When I was first starting out in itinerant ministry, I, I travel and speak. I, I, I thought I'd be like a pastor in a church, like these guys. 
but apparently God doesn't trust me with the church much longer than a weekend. And so <laughs> I, I, at first I, I didn't understand that, that, Lord, I'll do whatever you want, but this seems strange. But uh, someone explained, God calls most men and women to a church, but he calls her, every once in a while he calls a handful to the church. I just have to kind of go out and do some of the stuff. It, it, they actually, they bring me in to maybe say, say things that they've been wanting to say to you all, but they can't get away with. But I have a boarding pass on me, <laughs> and so I'm out of here. Uh, um, but, but being a Western person, still, so um, Billy Graham had an event back, oh, a couple decades ago, where he invited itinerant speakers from all over the world to Amsterdam for special training and ministry, and most of them were from either third world countries or developing countries, but there was a handful of us he invited from the West, and we got this invitation, we went over there, my wife and I, and and, and, you know, those, they had the plenary speakers, Billy Graham and Billy Kim and, and Luis Palau, people like that. And then they had breakouts. And there was like 20,000 people there. So the breakouts were pretty large. And so Darcy and I just said, let's split up and, you know, take notes at each one and then share the notes. And she went to one on this particular uh, session, was on administrating a ministry. And I went to one on the priority of prayer and ministry. So I went there and, and the guy was speaking. And I was actually... There was about a thousand people in this room, and I was actually sitting on a row, an empty row behind the the last row of people. And so he, he talked about the priority prayer. Then he said, oh, he finished. He said, "Now look, I've given you some time. I want you to find somebody, pair up with somebody, and pray for each other." So everybody kind of stood up, started moving around, and as they did, there was a man over here. He had this brown skin and, and and black hair and dark eyes, big smile. And he came. He looked over at me, and he came racing around, came down my aisle. He introduced himself, a complicated name. I couldn't re remember what he said, and he, he was from Sri Lanka. And, and I'm trying to figure out, where, where is that? But anyway, uh, I since looked it up. Uh, but he, and he, he said, uh, we pray together? Yeah, where are you from? And I told him, U.S. Oh, he said, I was hoping I'd get to visit with some from, the, from, from America. I just love the way you all do ministry and all. So we pray, and, and I'm going to be honest with you. I was looking around for someone else. I was. I just thought, come on, nothing in common. I'm looking for someone. I was, I was. But I was stuck. He had me. So I sat down there, and we started to visit. And, and he wanted to know all about me and what I did and my family. And I you know, married, yeah, I told, and you have, you have a couple. And, and I had a picture of them in my Bible, how you spell their names. And, and he's writing down Darcy and the kids' names and so forth. And, and he says, how can I pray for you? And, and, and I said, well, something lame, like, I'll pray when I go out to people, like, Pay attention or something, something stupid like that. So then he started to pray. And as soon as he started to pray, I thought, oh, man, I'm in serious trouble now. Because I could tell by the way he prayed that it was one of those guys that when they pray, one of those kind of people, when they pray, you know, God just stops there. Oh, I love hearing from this. I'm going to just pay attention to this guy. You know, there's no email thing, and I'll get back to you later. Nuh -uh, right on him. And he was just so passionately pouring out his heart for me. And, my, and you know what he was naming? He was talking to me my name, Darcy by name, my kids by name. I was looking right at him, and he had already memorized our names. I couldn't remember his. When he got done praying, I said, oh, okay, how can I pray for you? I'm going to talk the way he talked, not to make fun of him. It was actually precious. He said, oh, Mr. Tim, pray. When I go into villages to take the matchless gospel of Jesus, I can find safe tree to sleep in at night. So I'm writing this down, and I said, you sleep in trees. Yeah. Why don't you sleep in a hotel? 
Now, you see, that's a stupid question that a Westerner would say to somebody like it. That's as, that's as dumb as we get right there. And he said, oh, oh, most places I go, they, no hotel. Plus, that would cost money. We don't have that kind of money. I had more throwaway money in my front pocket than he sees in a year. Why don't you sleep, sleep in somebody's house? Oh, they'll, no, they're, they're, they're pretty hostile to Jesus. If, if people were nice to me, they could be punished badly after I left. So you sleep in trees. Yeah. Look at my notes. And I said, you said a safe tree. What's a safe tree? He said, oh, Mr. Tim, one night I was deep asleep, and I... I was just deep, and all of a sudden I woke up, and this vicious reptile had wrapped himself all around me, and he was squeezing me so hard, trying to kill me. I, was so, I couldn't breathe, and I fought, fought my way away from him. A python had gotten him. You know how they do. They crush you till they smother you. Then they devour you. He says, I got away from him, but ever since then, I have a hard time sleeping at night in the tree. You know, and, and I come to a hotel, and, and room service is closed. Oh, that's too bad. Or, you know, you know, it was like God just grabbed me by the, come on down here. I'm taking you to the woodshed. You haven't been paying attention. You have been, uh, you know, you putting those success uh, lines of Coke down there and, and snorting them just like every other Christian out there. You don't get it. Because, look, even in spite of that fear, he was still, he, nothing was going to stop him from taking that message out. He loved them that much. That's because Jesus was overwhelming his heart. We don't have to become goofballs and, and, and jamming Jesus down everybody's throat and, and being a complete, making complete idiots of ourselves to be the light of the world and the salt of the earth. But it does help us when we make sure that we don't let this world dictate what really matters to us. And when Jesus has his rightful place, it's there's no stopping what he wants to do with you, for you, in you, and through you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for these people. You bring a mighty love center stage in our lives that none of us deserve. You, yeah, there was no logical reason why you would step over time and space and sacrifice your life the way you did for any of us, and yet you did because you love us that much. And Lord, we just, we just come to you. Um, we're all crooked sticks, and yet I'm so grateful that in spite of that, you pick up crooked sticks all the time and draw straight lines with them for your glory, and we want you to do that with us. Be with every person here. Touch them. Speak to all of us now where we're holding out, because we want you to have the glory. We want the, the legacy of our life not to be about us, but to be about you. Thank you in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's talk and believe it would be helpful for others, please be sure to subscribe or share. To experience other messages or find helpful resources, visit us online at westbridgedanville.com.